Our passage this morning is mostly chapter 6 of Romans. We will look at a few verses from chapter 5. So if you have a Bible or a device to get ready, that's great. They will be on the screen just at the beginning of our discussion. But because I do refer back to the passage many times, it might be helpful to have another option. We are looking at uh, different passages on the resurrection. As we know, when Jesus uh, raises from the dead, which we celebrate on Easter Sunday, he stays around for a while before he ascends. And so the church has historically celebrated Easter on many Sundays, not necessarily with the egg hunts and those kind of things, but just the thematic idea of resurrection, though we focus every worship service on it every week of the year, I really do want to see how we might better understand what it looks like this side of heaven to live in light of the resurrection. I think a lot of us as Christians have slumbered into this kind of mindset of, you know, one day, someday there will be this amazing eternal life, but right now we're sort of just duking it out. And hopefully Jesus is somewhere in the midst of that process, but we can't wait for glory. And, And that's not the way the Bible presents it. The Bible says you have been raised to newness of life, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does that mean? We know it's not the full resurrection. There is a one day, someday meeting face-to-face with Jesus, whether it's through his return or our death to go to heaven, but there will be that one day, someday final glorification we long for. Um, But this side of heaven, we do have a very real presence of of the resurrection available to us through the Spirit's presence in our lives and through what that means as an individual in a community. So that's what's behind this, um, this series. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, an amazing passage that I commend to you if you were not here, where Paul really outlines incredible, incredibly detailed what the resurrection means now. And remember at the very end, toward the end of the passage, he says, Where is thy sting, O death? Uh, the, he says, The sting of death is sin, The power of sin is the law. And so we began talking about sin and law last week. So this morning, more of that. Uh, And the title of our sermon is Set Free from Sin. So let's read it together. And as I mentioned, we'll begin actually with the first two verses of Romans 5, and then we'll move through. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Then at the end of chapter 5, Paul, having discussed the law in more detail and some of the more theological understanding, he says, Now the law came in to increase the, the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here we move into chapter 6 with this very famous uh, question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this truth. We praise you that Paul um, was called by you, that your Holy Spirit has given us this scripture, not only in writing, but that you illuminate it to those that are in you, that we can read it, we can understand it, it can have impact. But Lord, we also confess with Peter that Paul's hard to understand sometimes, And we pray that we would be diligent, not because he's hard to understand, but maybe we need to lean in more. We need to do the work of listening and praying and meditating. So I pray this morning this passage would become a little clearer to all of us, especially the truths of the gospel, that we may walk in newness of life for your glory. Amen. on March the 17th, I saw a, a note, or maybe the 18th or 19th, of a pa- the passing of Dick Hoyt. I've used Dick Hoyt as an illustration many times. You'll know him by the idea or the story of, that he and his son Rick would do marathons together. Remember, Rick is the gentleman who was born with cerebral palsy, uh, the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck at birth, leaving him handicapped. And so at, once, at a later age, I don't remember if he was a teenager, he approached his dad and said, let's run marathons together. And his dad famously took up the charge, and they would run these marathons. Uh, Rick would be in his, um, they designed a really great, um, I guess a wheelchair, but that could be designed for racing, and he delighted in these races. He was definitely a participant in these races. And yet right behind him is, is Dick, who's also running with him, and, and they're, they're doing this, and they called themselves Team Hoyt. And we're just thinking about this sermon and thinking about what we're talking about. I want us to understand, if, if you'll just hear at the very beginning, the, the sort of the whole point. Our Christianity, almost always when we're having a problem, when Christians are struggling, they don't understand it, uh, most often what's happening is they've forgotten the partnership. So much of what evangelical teaching does is it says, here's the truth, now you go do it. And so there would be Rick sitting in his wheelchair with no power. That's not how it works. The way the gospel works is we partner with our Father. And so a more perfect Dick Hoyt comes behind us in Jesus and fills us with his spirit. And we are in a mystical relationship with Jesus that requires our vulnerability and, and, and 
opening up to him and his powerful movement, that's what takes us into this life and gives us new life. That is what new life is. I could stop right now, and you have the entire sermon's idea already set. Now, the goal will be to get you and I to understand where we're struggling with this and how it looks. So the, 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 the proposition we're talking about today is the new life we have in Christ is a partnership, a partnership fueled by his grace. And the three points are going to be that partnership gives us new life, that partnership reveals our old self, and then finally that partnership drives us to the cross. Those are our three points. So our partnership brings us new life. Um, when you become a Christian, you're not simply having a belief system, your future set, some kind of ideology. You are entering a new life. Jesus famously in John 7, on the last day of a, of a festival, of a, of a feast, stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He didn't say this to crickets chirping. People weren't like, what is that guy? Thirst. He says this to a group, uh, to an audience of people who are thirsting. The promise of new life comes to you and I because we are made for new life. Like that is what will revive us. That is what we are made for. Last week I mentioned in our sermon uh, the vandalism of shalom as a definition of sin. Shalom being the word for peace. In, in the Old Testament it's much more than, you know, kind of like a ceasefire between enemies. It's a, it's a flourishing. Shalom is the way things were meant to be. And what has damaged that is the fall, is sin. And so Jesus has come to restore shalom, to bring us new life. And you heard Isaiah 55 at the beginning that you know, that where there were thorns, there would be the cypress. This, the negative are gone, the positive are coming. And that is a truth that you and I can have this side of heaven, but one day, someday, fully in heaven. So my first thought would just be, do you want that? I, I think so often as I experience Christians, uh, there's this kind of almost like, not really, mentality. I mean, that sounds lovely for some. I kind of like what I've figured out, what, the way I've set things up, the way my world's kind of running. And I'm, I'm, I want us to understand that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is saying there is so much for us if we will lean in to Christ. Think about, again, Rick, who could have just stayed at home and, and, and did his thing, but his father brought him new life in those races. He went on to get a college degree. And so Jesus is calling us to a new life. In our passage, we see that mentioned in two specific theological ways. Let me draw your attention to Chapter 5, 1, therefore we have been justified by faith. What does that mean? He goes on to say we have peace with God. So justification that is made right is no longer, if we have Christ, are we at enmity with God. We are now seen on God's team. We are actually adopted, which is another theological point. But we are made right because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. We've done nothing for it. We haven't done anything, and it's already credited to our account. And so that's the first thing the gospel offers is that credit. But he goes on to say in verse 2, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace, into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice 
in the hope of the glory of God. So there's not just justification, but there's this new reality that while we hope for glory, the space between justification and glory is sanctification. We are now in a space of new life where we have access to grace, and that grace will, does and it will revive us. In chapter 5, verse 20, then, he rounds out that chapter by saying, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's such confusing language for many of us, and it's not because it's confusing. It's because we are confused about the mission. So the idea of the law increasing trespass isn't I go do worse things as much as, though that can happen. And Paul goes on in Romans 7 to say the law can inflame you to do worse things. But rather, the right use of the law is it shows you the places where you still need grace. I am a fair-skinned person, so I... And I see these photos from the dermatology, you know, the normal photo and then the one that's like your real skin. Have you seen those photos? Like this is, if we have the right light, there's all the stuff just below this. You just can't see it. And I'm, you know, you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to set an appointment like every week. I'm going to come here and have them do what they need to do because I don't want that to take over. Well, that's the law. The law is great. The law doesn't make the sin. The law reveals it. And it says there's so much hope for you. But our challenge, our job is to respond to that by running to the cross. And so our newness of life is that grace upon grace is offered to us as we confess and, ac and accept the fact that we have these places where we can still grow, these, these places where we're still not yet revived. Just like an athlete who's growing, who's like, okay, now that I've come this far, I can, I can tweak this. A beginning athlete would never be able to do there's a progression in our faith. And so newness of life is a progression un until the day we die or Jesus returns, that we are becoming holier by grace. Now, in our passage, Paul says, let not sin reign in your body. I'm jumping down to verse 12. And he makes this statement. Um, he says, do not let it reign in your mortal body. And he goes on to talk about obeying its passions. We're going to talk about it in point two, some of those details. But what I find fascinating about Romans is the application of chapter six. What is the sin he's even talking about? Like, we just, we allow ourselves to go into things like, well, the, you know, the things we struggle with. Of course, the, the things that we, we have a challenge with or maybe our friend struggles with or that person struggles with. It's taken years to finally come to the terms that Paul's really talking about, in addition to those things, sin of the community. It, it really, Paul keeps making his theological points beautifully. And as many of you know, it's in chapter 12 where he really turns the corner. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 later. But in verse 3, he says... Do not be, well, in verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then in verse 3, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought. And he goes in to describing the body of Christ. There are many members, but there's one body. And he says this several times, and he describes the different giftings. And what Paul is leading us to there is this idea that here's the way 
newness of life works. Primarily, yes, Jesus and the doctrines of justification and sanctification, but the means by which you will experience Jesus this side of heaven is through the body of Christ. I've, can I just be honest? I've never liked that. Because I, I think if you just know anything about my story, you'll, well, you know, I, I want to know what I can do. I can't rely on how well everyone around me is doing. I need to know. So historically, I've struggled with that theology. As I moved into sonship and other things, I remember they kept talking about reconciliation and getting along with the body. Okay, I want to know how to read my Bible more and, you know, how to fast. I want to kind of get the things I can do under my belt. And it's taken a long time for me to understand the beauty of Romans and of this concept of the body of Christ. I was talking recently with a friend um, whom does not go to this church, but we meet for counseling via Zoom. And he said I could use the illustration. I told him I wouldn't say his name, so if you want to know who it is later, you can ask me. But um, he said, I sat down with a mentor, and that mentor said, and, he, and this person sort of complained, like, I'm struggling. And he went through a list of complaints. And that mentor said, I delight in you. And he said, I froze. And even hearing it, I kind of was like, that's weird, you know. And so we talked about it. And um, as he explained, and we've talked through the, some of his story, we realized that so much of his life, that wasn't the message he had received. And so how awkward that was. But here's what I said that I thought helped me. I don't know if it helped him. He said it did, but it helped me. I said, what if your assessment of yourself is wrong? Like, we, we don't think that way. We think, I know myself. You gave me a compliment. If you really knew the real me, you wouldn't probably have given me the compliment, but thank you. Right? We do that kind of game in our brain. But And you know the theory, like, you've never seen your own face. Like, we know that. I've talked about that. You've only seen reflections of your face in a mirror, but it's always looking at it. You can't, like, see your profile in a mirror unless you have two mirrors. And, and even then, it's like light reflect. You're not seeing yourself. And even a video or photos are just images. You don't really see yourself. And in the same way, we don't really see ourselves without other people. You know, a child learns, their, gets their identity not by like at age one going, I think I'm going to be an architect. They get their identity by the way people treat them. The love and the attunement and the care lets the child know who they really are. And they grow up. Now, some of us grew up in homes where there was attunement and containment and repair, and that's glorious. Others of us grew up in situations that were not that way, but no matter which one you grew up in, all of us grew up outside of the Garden of Eden, and we need Jesus. Because no matter what home we grew up in, we need to know that the God of the universe loves us and delights in us. And if we are in Christ, he does. And that is our entry point into the new life. But how do we experience that? The body of Christ. If you read through the scripture, the goal of this community is to be known and loved and to know others and love them. And over and over throughout the New Testament, Paul is like, do not backbite. Do not devour one another. And we do. It's not safe. And so with my friend, I want to say to you, maybe you don't know yourself as well as you think you do. And maybe you need us to come around you and tell you who you really are because of Christ. And that is a, one of the aspects of the newness of life. But I want to talk now about how our partnership 
with Jesus really does reveal our old man, much of which you could even feel in this conversation so far, because our old man is the part of us that insists on doing it our way and doing it by ourselves. Whatever it is, we've got it, right? Look at the opening question Paul asks. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now, why does he ask that question? You've heard this before. I've preached through this text before. You've read it before. Uh, when you think of Romans 6, I would encourage you, to let that be the dominant thought of Romans 6, like, should we sin that grace may abound? By no means. I, I've gone back and forth on why Paul was doing this, but back in chapter 3, he begins the, the conversation. He's introducing the beauty of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ to an audience who's not ready to receive it, and he makes the statement in verse 8 of chapter 3, and why, do not, why not do evil that good may come? It's a hypothetical statement. He doesn't believe that. He says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. What Paul's doing there is he's saying the gospel is so profound, so amazing, so free, so incomprehensible that you can tell you're getting close to it when you start to ask yourself, then why would I do anything? Like, why would I not just go on a sin rampage? And he's like, good, you're getting close. In fact, in chapter 3, he's like, that's a just statement. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said, um, if you're not accused of preaching antinomianism from time to time, you're not preaching the gospel. Antinomianism is a heresy that believes you can just go off and do whatever you want. There is no more law, antinomos, law. And uh, it makes its way into the church through maybe strands of like, hey, Grace means I can live however I want. There's no rules, which is, a, which is not true. The goal of being in Christ is righteousness. It's flourishing. It's new life. But the old man comes along and says, no, 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 no. That's too much. That's too free. You'll just want to go on sinning. And what, what's so amazing that Paul does in chapter 6 is he's like, maybe we don't really understand sin. Like, what is our impulse that thinks it's fun? Like, let's be honest, all of us sort of like it for a moment, right? The things you think of, like, I want to go eat the thing, I want to go do the thing, like, it kind of has this, like, if I don't get in trouble, it's kind of great. But then if you just process it for a minute, you realize it's super damaging. Remember the end of Catch Me If You Can, where Leonardo DiCaprio had been running from Tom Hanks' character, and it was like the law and the law runner. And at the very end, he works for the FBI, he's bored, and he decides, I'm going to do it again. And Tom Hanks meets him in the airport and says, enjoy your weekend. See you Monday. And you could just tell the lust for the sin was gone. And it was like, oh, that's boring. And so what Paul's saying is when the law is removed, the lust for sin becomes removed, and we begin to see it for what it is. And that is, it's, it's, it's really defined by pride. It's this sense that I have to figure out how to get through this world on my own. And brothers and sisters, I'm afraid as Christians, most of us continue with that mindset. Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate you. I've got to figure this particular problem out on my own. This issue, this struggle. Lewis says, I won't read the whole quote. I've quoted it enough times. I should start saying, I have once said. Have you heard that? Someone once said, I have once said. But this is C.S. Lewis. He says, the devil is setting up a dictatorship of pride. That's what he's doing. And he will gladly cure your skin problem if all the while he can give you cancer. 
In other words, if I can get a cream to take care of my psoriasis, if I'm some age that has psoriasis, or for a young person, my acne, I'll do whatever I can because I'm going to the beach this weekend and I've got to wear a bathing suit and I want my skin to look good, so I'll do whatever I can. And the devil's like, I got something for you, but it's going to give you cancer. And I'm not talking now about literal cancer. I'm saying the point is oftentimes the laws we choose to clothe ourselves with, to look good in public, to have the relationships we think we want, to survive the game of life are giving us cancer because we're alienated from Jesus. And it's killing us. So our partnership with Jesus reveals this tendency for the old man. I want you to look now at verses 12 and 13 and 14. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. I would like, I wish I could spend 30 minutes just on that verse. I won't, I won't do it, trust me. But over time, I want to do more work there. But that word for members, it, it means later Paul uses it for like body parts. It means the places that are not part of the mind. That's its actual meaning. But I think what Paul's saying there is we are, here's the challenge. We are one being and our body is part of us. But our flesh, through our mortality, has an opportunity. And that opportunity is our flesh can continue to operate according to the old pattern, though we've adopted a new reality. So the best example that I came up with just on this, as I put together, is an addict, someone who's going through addiction treatment, will be warned of cravings. So if you imagine an addict who used to do a, take a substance and is now learning coping and how to handle the stresses, and the, and the warning is when cravings come, don't immediately abandon the whole project. So what happens? A craving says what? Ah, oh, you know what you could use right now. You know what this situation calls for. That's what a craving does. There's a trigger and then a craving, right? That's neurobiological. So even though the mind of the addict is saying, no, 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 no more. I do not do that anymore. The body is saying, are you sure? Because right now this is super stressful. Wouldn't one of those things be wonderful? One thing, that's a craving. So our body, our members is going, oh, I have a way to solve this dilemma. And Paul's saying, don't. Rather, present yourself to God as one who's been brought from death to life. Like, don't obey the passion. Now, I think we're not really good at this. I think we go, okay, I get that. For those poor people who have addictions, oh, that's so sad. They have a craving. I got you, Ryan. Thank you. Every one of you is addicted. I'm addicted. Every one of us has a flesh. With how, Take your age. That's how many years of grooved neurobiological processes you have that have been set up to deal with all the problems of your life. And we come into Christianity, and they didn't just go away. They're still there. And what Paul is saying is stop living as if those things are what you should live by. Your methods of dealing with conflict with people, of dealing with someone hurting your feelings, of a craving for a particular substance, whatever the thing is, the way you react, Paul is saying, be careful, that's the old man, that's the old way, that's the, the mortality trying to solve your problem. Please understand, you now have a new way. Go to the cross. 
Um, have you ever heard pray without ceasing? That would almost be what we would have to do to live like this, right? That's one of those verses I think as Christians we're like, ha, 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 ha. Oh, Paul, you're so cute. And yet the more you see the warfare in your life, the more you see the attacks, the more you see your flesh, the more you pray. I saw a meme. I, I would show it, but I didn't tell them in time, and I'm still not sure how I feel about that in sermons. So I'll just describe it, and that way people outside and on audio can understand it. But it was a really simple meme of a woman. There's a top and a bottom, kind of a, uh, two different scenarios. And it says me, and it shows her looking at eight glasses of water going, ugh, eight glasses of water. And then the, the bottom picture said also me, and there are eight glasses, but four are lattes and four are wine. And she's joyfully sipping the latte. And I liked it because it's a pretty good example of like, oh, praying without ceasing. Wait, I'm, I'm doing something without ceasing. What is it? Anxiousness. I'm toiling. We don't walk through life at peace. And then Paul says, pray. You know, I guess I've got to remember the bad stuff going on. Like, we're ruminating on all the problems of our lives at all times. And we're telling people. So we're doing it. We're just not doing it the way God's called us to do it. To go to him. To go to the throne of grace. And so our last point is that our partnership gives us this perfect opportunity. Paul is not saying, get rid of sin. Paul's not saying, read chapter 6 and never sin again. That's not what he's saying. That's the hope. That would be a fruit. Progressively being sanctified is our goal. But what he's offering us is a process where, because of our partnership with Jesus, when the old man brings up this stuff, rather than presenting it to sin, what does he say in verse 13? Present yourselves to God. There's two steps. Present yourselves to God. Not my member, my true self. What's, my, what's the difference? Well, there's the mortal body, the longing, the craving, but there's my true self. Paul later in Romans 8 talks about, I see a law in my body, I see a law in my mind, or my true self. Our true self can go, Jesus, wait a minute. I'm about to do something. And here's the, here's the application of this entire discussion. Present your true, who you really are to God as those who have been brought from death to life. But listen to part two. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So what does it look like to be in partnership with Christ? We pay attention to all the places of our lives where our flesh wants to do what it's always done in relationships and addictions and the bad stuff and what we think's the good stuff. But no, it's our flesh. And Paul saying, bring those things to the cross because of what you have in Christ. Just a, a quick read of um, Augustine's quote on the front. Just a really good quote on something I've been talking about for a few weeks. But he says, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in him. So all of these flesh-driven impulses are attempts at getting what Jesus offers us at the cross. And so the command of Paul is go back over and over to the cross. Why don't we do it? It's super painful. 
it's so much easier just to use the strategies that have been grooved, isn't it? I'll just, I'll just cut that person off. That's 10 times easier. You know, I'll just unfriend them. Literally, in real life, I'll just unfriend them. They're gone. It's much easier. It's much harder to come up to somebody than weep together. But listen to Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship. Do not be conformed to this world, old man, flesh, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The application then is that we are coming into a community where our sins are often going to be reflected. Either we feel them, we express them, we're told about them, and we're experiencing others. And the church is the one community on planet Earth that can do this and grow through mutual love and care and repair because of the cross. I can actually come to somebody knowing I am a greater sinner than this person. So even if I have to confront them on something hard, I can do it because I know my sin is greater and I've been forgiven. And the gospel compels me to do that. So my question is, why are we not doing it? We're coming out of a pandemic, and I feel like I'm hearing so much more criticism of everything than I've ever heard before. And it's coming so often from the church, universal and local. And I want to call us to not read these verses and smile and pat each other on the back and go about our lives. I want us to go, wait a minute. This isn't a game. Two weeks ago, Jerry was fine. Two weeks ago, Jerry Pertit is doing great. Today, he's with Jesus. I want us to know, if you're not a Christian, that's serious. We live in a world that death is everywhere. But if you are a Christian, please do not let death enter the church through unbelief and unfaith. But rather, let's come to the cross, bring our sins to him privately and together, and repent and begin to actually build a community based on repentance and faith where we love one another. Where are you living separately from Jesus? What are the ways your old man comes out? Is it charm, wit, methods for moving into group, methods of ignoring problems? Is it an addiction that you've not told anybody, a lifestyle that you're either ashamed of or you're not even ashamed of? Like, the beauty of this is this. I'm not saying get rid of those things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We want those to go away. But what we're saying is, Jesus is saying, I know, bring it to me. We're going to take communion where Jesus is saying, this is my body, this is my blood broke. Are you needing salvation? Are you needing blood? I do. I've done enough sin this morning to need the fresh application of the blood of Christ. And so have you. So let's stop playing this Christian game where what we do is we get all of our outer skin where we want it, like Lewis says, but inside we're cancerous. Rather, let us go, Jesus, go straight into the core. Bring your brokenness to him in newness of life. Let us pray. Father, we are so used to comforting ourselves, clothing ourselves, putting lotion on ourselves that is based on our old flesh that we don't even see that. 
And your law comes, Lord. Your law, your glorious law says, love your neighbor as yourself. Will you forgive us for saying no? Will you forgive us for saying we're not going to do that? Jesus, you loved us. You came and rescued us. You've died on the cross. You've removed our sin through the propitiation. You took it on, the wrath of your Father. You exchanged our sin with your righteousness, so we are now counted, completely set free. And Lord, you give us access to the throne of grace so that daily and moment by moment we can come to you with our hurts, our pains, our struggles, our brokenness. Will you teach us? Will you call us Holy Spirit? Will you convince us to do that? And Jesus, will you revive this community, that we would be a community not of popularity or coolness, but a community of vulnerability and openness and brokenness unto restoration, to new relationships, to new depths of friendships, to new healing that we can't even imagine. Lord, will you make us like Rick Hoyt who would ask you to run us through marathons that we could go into places of righteousness we've never dreamed of before, all because of your glory and by the way of your Holy Spirit. Amen.